Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. Today, I've got Kelly Deals on as a guest. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, Kelly. I'm so excited. So we go back. I don't even remember how I first heard about you, but I'd been following you for years and the amazing work that you do that we're going to talk about. And then I signed up for your feminist copywriting course or feminist copyright certificate, copywriting certificate. And I was so blown away by your content and your, the way that you're like, everything you do is when I countered it, it was like so opposite to what I had been doing as a salesperson, as a marketing person. It was like this whole other way of being in relationship in business relationship with people that felt so much more in alignment with how I wanted to be in a relationship with people so much more in alignment with how I wanted to talk about my offerings to people. And I just, your work is so important. I'm really glad that we get to talk all about it today. Oh, this is going to be a delight. Well, I am appreciating being here and that everyone's giving us their attention. It's such a gift. Right? I agree. I agree. Um, so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about who you are? Okay. Well, I am Kelly Deals. I am a feminist. I am a puppy owner <laughs> <laughs> or, or a, a puppy tender. <laughs> uh, I'm a mom and I am a, a writer and a development consultant. So when I say development consultant, I mean, I help people develop businesses and I help people develop their power. And I do that specifically through a feminist, culture-making, liberation-oriented lens. It's already so good. <laughs> it's just so, such a different way to be. Oh, I love it. I also, you're also fat. And I want to talk to you about that. Because that was one of the things when, and you, the way, another thing that drew me to you was your photos on your website are full body. You show your body. And as another fat person, I was not used to seeing that within a business context. And it's totally one of the things that drew me to you because I was like, whoa, if she can do that, maybe can I do that? Is that okay? Can I still have a business while I'm fat? And so another thing that just really, I just felt was so impressive about you. So can you tell us about your relationship, your journey with the word fat? So I think for the first 36 years of my life, I had a real problem with the word and the idea. And I think that I have been dieting since I was 11 years old. And, you know, it was just a constant fact in my life. Even when I didn't have a big body, it was still my, my total preoccupation. And then something happened when I was 35 and 36 years old. I discovered the fat acceptance body positivity movement back in the day when people were blogging about it. And, you know, I was starting to, uh, I think one of the people I got introduced to was Kate Harding. And I read that blog and all the, the beautiful writers on that page. And I suddenly started accepting myself. I suddenly realized that I wasn't a problem and that there was bias that I was navigating and that I didn't have to hate myself. And that was not an overnight thing. I didn't suddenly realize like, oh, I don't have to hate myself. I'm going to stop hating myself. It was more like, oh, well, let me practice not hating myself. And sometimes I pretended not to hate myself. And until it just suddenly took, well, not suddenly, eventually 
You know, I grew a new set of muscles and a new set of practices. And I made like explicit decisions not to diet anymore, not to be upset by the word fat, to just look at it as a neutral descriptor, just like I have blue green eyes and, you know, short nails. It's just a descriptor. And so I, I had to work on that though. And that also coincided with me starting a business. And I, I just want to say that I had, well, I had started a business a little bit earlier before I start, uh, discovered the fat acceptance body positivity movement. And I was really struggling because I felt like I was learning a method for getting attention online because I have an online business that I actually couldn't perform. And I ended up calling it this thing, I, this pattern, the female lifestyle empowerment brand. And basically what I saw was a legion of very thin, very pretty white women, able-bodied, cisgendered, all the things, heterosexual presenting perhaps. Um, and what I saw them doing was getting attention for their businesses through their looks and through performing like a, a version of hyper-femininity. And so when I was training in those programs, I was in this place of cognitive dissonance because like, well, of course they can do this thing that they're telling us to do. They can show up with pictures and they can show up with video because everyone looks at them and, and they align with our internal understanding of what is an acceptable woman or even what is a high status woman, a woman that we can look to as a leader. And I am not that. So then how do I rock this marketing system that they're laying out if my pictures do not engender the same feeling in other people. And if my identity actually incites people's bias, and I'm not, as a white fat woman, I am not the only one who experiences this. Anyone with a marginalized identity who's visibly out of um, what Audre Lorde would call the mythical norm is going to have that same sort of critical juncture where we're like, how do we do this? If the success strategy is presenting as, you know, white, pretty, thin, able-bodied, cis, all of those things, and I'm not those things, or I'm only uh, I'm only a few of those things, or whatever it is. If I'm not those things, how? What's my path to power? What's and I don't mean power in a gross way, right? I mean in a generative way. But like, what's my path to resources? What's my path to right livelihood? If that's the system, and I can't work that system, and when I had that epiphany of like, oh, the marketing strategies and business tactics and formulas I'm learning actually depend on presenting that identity so that people see me as a leader and a high status person and an acceptable person, I'm in trouble. This is never going to work. And so that then kicked me off and that coinciding with me unraveling my own bias against my own identity made me name what it was and develop a different way. I was like, this business system is not going to work for me. Just like the existing systems don't work for me, you know, structurally, none of this works for me. So I have to do it different because if I just play along, then I know, I already know what the outcome is. It's no good. So that certainty is really useful. The uncertainty of like, well, if I do it differently, something different might happen is where the possibility lies. That's hope, right? So I was like doubling down on hope doubling down on I'm not going to change myself, doubling down on the system is not going to work and it doesn't work for most of us and we've got to change that. And then looking at my own life, like, okay, well, with what I'm doing, how do I interrupt that? How do I create a new reality for myself and maybe a re new reality for other people as well? So that is why I just went back to the basics with my business tactics and was like, okay, here are the 76 things I've learned. What's the opposite of all of those? <laughs> <laughs> what do I do different? That was my starting point. That's brilliant. Well, and I, I'm really struck in this moment. I don't know if I thought about it quite this way before, that when you saw kind of the formula, rather than what the formula is designed to do, which is to work on yourself to get to a conforming state, so diet, all this other stuff, you were like, no. So that really was a rebellious breaking act like separation from as opposed to feeling the pressure to try to you know climb that body, body hierarchy ladder i had been trying to climb that body hierarchy my entire life and and i was in friction like real cognitive dissonance about it because i had one set of principles as a feminist and then another set of practices of just trying to survive in the world and they were constantly at odds. And I guess I can just say at the age of 35, 36, I left in a marriage, had two little kids, was trying to start a business, 
it just became this like rupture point in my life, which is, okay, I have been complying and trying to follow along and trying to be a good girl and fix myself and do all the things. And none of it has worked. It's never going to work because it's not designed for me to work. Right? It's not designed for me. It's not designed for most of the people I know and love and care about. And if it's if that's the case, then like, why do we play along? We don't have to play along. That's the question. Why do we play along? I wonder, I feel like a lot of times we don't even know that there's an alternative until there, until that cognitive dissonance becomes so painful that it's like, there has to be a different way. Let me reach out and see if I can find like a rope to grab onto. Well, I, I mean, the other thing that went on at that particular moment, because I had left a relationship, I had no child support, two kids, very little, like toddlers, and was really financially struggling. And I was living in Vancouver and I'm looking around, I'm going like, I am never going to get out of this if I carry on going this way. So there's like this financial thing too. And I literally like, let's talk about housing as a, as a situation. But I was like, I will never be able to buy a house in this market on my own ever. It will just never happen. And this is, I have done everything I was supposed to do. You know, I went to university, I got straight A's, I have a good job. And yet at the end of the month, I have zero dollars and like negative zero dollars. So if I play along, it's not going to work. I, I have all the evidence, you know? So I literally was having this existential crisis of like, I have played along in every single way. And, and it was hard to play along. It means forcing yourself. It means being brutal to yourself. It means, you know, doing harm and violence to yourself with constant semi-starvation and other things, you know? And I just was like, if we play along the system co-ops our bodies and turns us into hamburgers and it's not designed for us to win and I don't even need to win I just want to have a happy joyous life and be able to like love my children and survive like I I mean I have slightly higher expectations now but I mean it's not I just want to underline that like it's not designed for any of us to be okay so we don't have to play along it's not it's not so easy as just like okay I'm done with it though because we do get punished when we deviate like, that's a real thing. There's real blowback. Yeah. And we do still have to live within parts of it. Okay. So this is actually one of the things I talk about a lot. And this is what I call the culture maker's dilemma or the culture maker's double bind. We have to live in the existing system as it is right now, right? We can't just imagine our way out of it. Like, I wake up tomorrow, I still have to go to the grocery store and they still want money. And they want lots more money right now. Everything's double. <laughs> That's real. I have to live in the existing system that is not designed, and for some of us is designed to kill some of us, right? We still have to live in that situation, system. We can't just imagine our way out of it. And also, we want to change it. So what I say the culture maker's double bind is, is like we're trying to play the game and be okay in the game as it is, and also over here make a whole new field, a whole new set of rules, and a whole new game. So we're playing two games at once in a system that doesn't want us to win. So it is actually a legit decision to exit. Like we have the choice of voice, which is where we stay and we try to change it with our voices and our lives and our actions, or we can exit it. But exit it wasn't a legit, it's a legitimate option. It wasn't a practical option for me. I am not about to go live in the woods in a yurt, you know, off grid. I, I'm just, that's not what I'm going to do. So if I'm going to stay here in it, how do I stay here in it? in a way that allows me some self-respect, that allows me to be in community, to circulate resources. You know, like, how do I do that? How do I stay in it with ha without having it kill my soul, kill my community, kill me? How do I do that? So that, to me, is the culture maker double bind. We stay in it, we stay fighting, but we also have to, like, create flourishing lives. Because if we're miserable, and we are starved, and we don't have resources, then that is just the system working as it was supposed to. So it, it's a it's a tricky place, but that is that is the game. Is we have to stay in it. We need to flourish in it while we're changing it. My friend Magna says, Magna Madhvadar, she's an incredible coach. She says, we play the game to change the game. How do we do that? I mean, it's interesting. Every morning, my partner and I sit down with our coffees and we inevitably end up in this conversation of, okay, we have to wake up and do capitalism to some degree. And we also deeply reject 
everything. That's a double bind. It is. Like we literally start our days in this like acknowledged double bind. (laughs) So what are, what are, so what do we do with that? How do we, how do we do it differently? I mean, that's, we do our best to flourish right now, right? So all the conversations we're having about cultivating joy and cultivating rest and cultivating right relationship and sweet relationship with other people, that's part of it, right? And we also have to really hold on to the fact that the system is designed to extinguish us and extract resources from us. So us being under-resourced and miserable is the system working as it was intended. So every time we can frustrate that, we are frustrating that system. We're undermining it, right? And we also have to be in a place of it gets very easy to be co-opted by capitalism. So we also have to be like, okay, we need to be in integrity, practicing like our own moral principles. We have to know what our values are. And so like for me, I'm not out to run a $10 million a year business because to me, that's like hoarding excess and that's not aligned, but I am out to make an awful lot of money, comparatively speaking, to like what the average Canadian makes, because I have a lot of responsibilities. I have four children, I support elders, I support extended family members, I supported the immigration of my nibbling. So like, I have a lot of financial responsibility, so I need to earn a lot of money. So I'm going to unapologetically earn a lot of money and support my extended family, contribute to my community and live a flourishing life. But I don't care about like wearing ridiculous designer clothes. Although go ahead. Like if that's, if that's someone's thing, go ahead. But like, I just don't think I need excess. I need a lot to do what I need to do, but I don't need, I don't need to hoard. I need to keep it in circulation. So the other thing I think about is as a woman in coming from you know, a lower middle class family and having an extended family that has a lot of poverty. What I have seen is the older women in my family on both sides of my family have been incredibly screwed over. They have spent their lives taking care of other people, caregiving, providing for everyone, giving everything they had to everyone. And then in their elder years were abandoned, alone, sick, unwell, and nobody was there for them. And so I, I hold that. I hold that as I don't want that to happen to me. So I also have to earn enough to create a safety net for myself because the social safety net is not there. So that when I am 84 years old and very ill, that I actually you know, have resources to get help and get support and won't be abandoned. So those are all things that we're navigating. And that like, how do we do capitalism without being co-opted by capitalism is a tricky thing, but it is, I think, by keeping it front of mind. And also, I don't want us to think there's there's binary thinking that sometimes goes on. It's like people want to say, oh, I'm anti-capitalist. I don't even know that I could say I'm anti-capitalist. But people say I'm, not, I'm anti-capitalist and then they hate money and they're mad at everyone who's earning money and they expect to get everything for free. This is what happens to me a lot. People are like, I'm anti-capitalist. Can I have your course for free? And I'm like, yeah, well, I still have to like feed my children. So no, you can't have it for free. But um, what I want to say about this is anti-capitalism doesn't mean we suffer. That's not the point, right? And, and, and commerce in the sense of people exchanging things and even debt and credit existed long before capitalism. And so we can be exchanging goods and creating livelihoods without being like rampant, a robber baron capitalist. And even when we're talking about capitalism, I think that's the piece that we need to oppose is like the, the people who are extracting labor and resources and not compensating it equitably to build huge excesses of capital and take it out of circulation and hoard it, right? That is the problem. Like the Bezos Amazon model is robber baron capitalism. That is the problem. You know, a a person who's a life coach making $120,000 a year is not the problem. Your neighbor with a BMW is not the problem. Right? Like those are not the, that's not the problem. Let's keep our eye on what the real problem is. Yeah. And it's so easy though, to like, look at the BMW and get mad because we feel so powerless as individuals to go after the Jeff Bezos, Robert Barron model. And like the big structures. Yeah. 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 It feels so out of reach. Like, what can I do? I'm just like a person drinking my coffee in the morning. Yeah. And that's something I think I sometimes see in our community spaces and in online spaces as we have these tools of analysis 
which are part of the tools that we need to change the system, right? I mean, we need to be able to see it and analyze it, but then we train them on each other and we sharpen them on each other instead of like looking at like, okay, what is it? What's the thing? What are the levers we need to, to move to change that big thing that's shaping our lives? You know, like so-and-so down the street is not my problem, right? <laughs> like the bigger systems is the problem yeah 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 and it's just amazing how readily we can turn to the individual which the system feels great about because we're not attacking the actual problem we're doing the work of the system (laughs) we are yeah yeah so when you realized that you did not fit this kind of marketing formula (laughs) that was presented to you and you took all i think you said 72 things and decided to do the opposite what happened then? Because that was also coinciding with you ditching diet culture. So like, how did all this tie together for you? So what happened was when I definitively broke up with the old way of doing business and thought like, this is not going to work for me. I'm not going to play this character. This is exhausting. My business actually got successful. I love it. So, and that is totally contrary to the idea that we have, which is that like practicing a just business, an economically just business, or doing business according to your feminist liberationist principles means that it's going to cost more and you won't make money and you're going to starve, right? Because we're always like, well, justice costs too much money. You know, like we, we can't do that. It doesn't work. It actually does. Because you know what sells? Trust sells. And so one thing, trust sells. So when people have faith in your principles, then they are able to take the risk to work with you. And the other thing is, your principles are just part of you. So they are an ever renewable source of fuel. And so if you can show up and talk fluidly and honestly about what's important to you, why you do what you do, well, you can do that all day, every day, because it's just right there. There's no, there's no pretense. There's no performance. It's just right there. Whereas when I have to show up as the perfect woman and be smiley and chipper and positive and likable, well, that's going to be a problem for me. And if I'm going to have to perform thinness, well, I literally physically cannot, right? And if I could perform these other identities, I literally cannot perform them. Or if I perform them, I'm not going to perform them well. But like, if I'm excluded from that, and and it's, it takes a lot of energy out of me to perform it. Like, think about if you're on a stage. Get off the stage, you're going to be exhausted. Performing a character is exhausting. Right. So if you have to perform that character, you're going to run out of gas. So if you just have to be yourself and market with your actual principles, market your actual work and show up as you are without masking, which is a tough thing to do. Masking is a a survival strategy. Right. But if you can do that, well, that's a lot easier to sustain because it doesn't take as much energy and it's true. Right. I can't sustain the fake stuff. So what I used to do before I had this awakening um, is I would try to perform the character and I'd be, and I could do it for like three months and I pre- tried to like execute those marketing systems. I could do it for about three months ish, you know, and then I would collapse because it, the, the, it just took too much out of me. And then I would go silent for three months and my business would just wither away for three months. And then I'd like summon the courage and fuel back up and like, okay, talk some shit to myself about, okay, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to self stop self-sabotaging, which I wasn't doing, but that's what I was telling myself at the time. So anyways, what I'm trying to say is before when I was trying to do marketing and business the way it was done in the mainstream and before when I was trying to climb that body hierarchy and, you know, do that thing, I couldn't sustain it because it took so much energy. The performance and the self-abnegation and the self-abuse takes too much energy. When I stopped doing those things, guess where I relocated all of my cognitive abilities? into my business, which now I could actually fluidly show up and market because I was proud of the tactics instead of embarrassed by them. I didn't feel like I was being sleazy because I wasn't doing all of those gross, manipulative, extractive things anymore. So now I can market fluidly because I'm proud of my marketing and my sales tactics, and I don't have to fake anything. So those two things meant that I could just show up every day, day in and day out, And now my business works because when you're steadily, consistently marketing yourself, your business will work. So it was way more sustainable and it was more true. And when I'm saying what I actually believe, I attract the people who want to be in that space. So now I actually have like like a a community generation machine. So it, it just, everything worked so much better. And I mean, like to the level of like tripling my income in like eight months when I started doing just 
dropped those, those, those systematic standardized status quo ways of being and doing and started just doing it my own way, it worked. Amazing. Oh my gosh. It's so inspiring. I have um, a sales background. I was in sales for years and years. And so when I was first going through the marketing certificate, I was like, oh my God, I did that. Oh, I did the other thing. Oh, I did like, I created false urgency. I, I might, I trained my team on nine drips until you quit. Like, you know, like you reach out nine times over, you know, five business days. I mean, I, I was bought in hook, line and sinker and it was manipulative and pestering. And I don't, I did not engender trust in any way. Basically they just kind of gave in or like, fine, fine. I'll hear what you have to say. And that was considered good, you know, and we're talking returns. What, what is the average outreach? Like 3%, one to 3% return on your outreach. And, and then I was reading through, I mean, it was just what you've created is so much more human and so much more aligned in humanity and it's like you said it's through it's through that trust and that relationship built and it feels so much better it feels so much better to put out in the world as well which is why i can publish and write and post at the rate that i do because i i don't have any friction about it anymore like it's just this is what i think this is what i believe i said what i said and that's the thing. It's just a much easier, but also like not having to be in a place of friction with my own business and the way that I treat people is a really, a really big deal. Like all those things that you just mentioned, like we were trained to, to fake scarcity so that people buy, well, what is happening there? Like I went literally went to the root of that. Like that is, uh, there's like these, these tools of persuasion that work on humans. They work on all humans because if resources are getting scarce, humans, because we've endured many famines across many generations, um, our survival instincts subconsciously kick in. So when we detect scarcity, we start gathering resources to preserve against the coming famine. And just because I, in my suburban home, am not in an active famine doesn't mean those mechanisms don't work. They absolutely work because I am human. And that is like, that's part of me, right? And so when we're doing that, what are we actually doing? We're activating people's fears of survival on a subconscious level. I find that to be really disgusting. So just like on a general level, I find that to be disgusting and predatory. But in a in a more specific way, if you think about people who actually are in material um, and like generational current and past experiences of poverty and deprivation, activating scarcity in them is just a brutal thing to do and a deeply oppressive thing to do. So there was a, a poet who once wrote a line and her name escapes me right now, but maybe it'll come back to me. She wrote a line in a poem that said, scarcity plus women is patriarchy, right? So women historically and presently live in states of scarcity. We have less resources than men. We, and resources have been withheld from us. My mother tried to buy a house in 1973 and couldn't get a mortgage because she was a woman. Right, like th this is not an old thing. Right, <laughs> this is our lived experience currently. There is a gender wealth gap. There is a wage gap, and when you like go through the different identities, they are pronounced, like pronounced. So women live in states of economic scarcity. That is patriarchy. So if then I, as a woman entrepreneur, on a daily basis, activate scarcity in women to sell my stuff. I'm activating patriarchy. I am an agent of patriarchy. So I'm not going to activate fake scarcity. What there's a, there's a nuance here though. So the nuance here is if you have a course starting on Tuesday, September 7th, and it's a live course and someone's butt needs to be in a seat, well, you have to communicate that deadline to them. So communicating a legitimate deadline is not the same thing as activating scarcity. If I want to go to university, I need to get my application in because I need to go to school on a certain date and everything needs to be done. Like those are legit real deadlines. So we have to communicate honestly about that so people can, you know, make their budgets, adjust their calendars, make the, you know, the emotional commitment. That, so we have to communicate real actual deadlines, but we don't need to invent fake ones. And even so, for example, I had a sale this week 
And I really wrestled with myself about having a sale because it's going to be limited in time. It's going to be bound in time. And what that is, is like, am I activating fake scarcity? So, but I have to bind it in time because I cannot run a business model where everybody gets 50% off for an entire year. Because again, I have all these responsibilities. So if I'm going to have a sale, it has to be bound in time. And so that it's good for me and it's good for the clients. So that I'm like, okay, so that's a legitimate deadline. There's an opportunity here for people to save money. It has to be bound in time. Otherwise, the rest of my business collapses. And so then I'm like, okay, well, that's a legitimate choice. And there's a reason I'm doing it. And this makes sense to me. Because I say a feminist business, a culture making business has three components. It has to be good for you, the business owner and the business. It has to be good for the client. And it has to be good for the community. So whenever I'm doing something, I run it through that filter. So if something's only good for the client and only good for the community, but not good for me, well, that's not sustainable and that can't happen. If it's only good for me, but it's not good for the community and the client, well, that's not sustainable and that can't happen. So in this case, I looked at the sale and I ran it through that filter. I was like, it's going to be one day, which means, yes, some people are going to feel activated around that. But is it good for me? Yes. Is it good for me? Like, and, and we'll talk about that because I need to pay for a surgery. So is it good for me? Yes, it's going to help me pay for the surgery. Is it good for the client? Yes, they're going to get a substantial discount on things they were wanting to buy. Is it good for the collective? I can make an argument that putting my resources about how to build resources and how to build money and build power into the hands of more people in our community is actually a useful thing. So therefore, this decision, which some people could say activates fake scarcity, I run it through that filter and it works so that I'm like, okay. And the point of me saying all of this is we're never going to make perfect decisions. We cannot be flawless in a flawed system. We make the best possible decisions we can in the real world circumstances we're in and try to do as little harm as possible. So I felt like the greater good here and the criteria of a feminist business were satisfied. But I'm just saying this because there's no hard and fast rules like thou shalt not do this and thou shalt do this instead. What we need to do is have a set of principles and a worldview and analysis so that we can navigate and make complex decisions every day. And they might change from time to time and policies and practices can shift across time. So it's not this is the way, you know, here are the 10 commandments from Kelly Deals. That's that's not what this is about at all. <laughs> I love that. I kind of want the Ten Commandments from Kelly Deals. <laughs> another another aspect that I thought is so brilliant and again deeply unusual in terms of kind of mainstream sales marketing tactics is this idea around consent. And I was really blown away by it. And I think it's so important. And I'll, I'll invite you to explain it in a second because. For me, consent goes so hand in hand with the lack of consent that we have with what we are fed by systemic oppression, right? Like it's a lack of consent for us when we believe that food restriction, we've been told fat is bad, food restriction is good. Like, you know, like those are ideas that were not given to me consensually. I was not given full evidence. And so this idea of consent feels very connected in to not only the work of anti disseminating anti fatness and stopping diet culture, but it's, it's also you've baked it into this work too. So importantly, well, let's think about this for a second in systems of oppression. What is the target? It is acted on bodies, right? Like bodies are the targets of injustice. And so, when we are talking about lack of consent, what we're talking about is bodily sovereignty or bodily control. Who gets to make the decisions about whose bodies? When we're violating consent, we're violating people's ability to self-determine and decide what they want to do with their body. So of course there's, of course there's a connection, right? So there's a system of oppression that says these kinds of bodies are wrong and acceptable targets for punishment and abuse. God, I hate it so much. Right? <laughs> and, so and true. So like you're, you're picking up a real thing and we are born into that. We've never consented to that. And then we are coerced psychologically across our lives into complying with that to avoid the punishment, bias and discrimination that is directed at people who've been marked as acceptable targets for abuse. So like dieting, like 
it, it's a it's a form of self abuse, but it makes sense to me in the sense like you're trying to avoid the harm and punishment that comes with your body being marked as an acceptable target for abuse. Yeah, totally, totally. And for me, the consent piece is in marketing is very connected to rape culture. So for me, I'm a child who grew up being sexually abused. And so I can spot that everywhere, right? Like I can spot grooming patterns and I understand the abuses of authority and the overriding of consent. Like I know that from lived experience. And so when I was learning business and I was learning how to market, I literally in my heart was going like, why are we trying to do this? Like, why are we trying to manufacture authority so that people will obey us so that we can extract things from them? And why are we trying to game them and trick them into all of these things so we can get what we want out of them? Like, I know this cycle very intimately and I don't want to play this. I don't, I don't want to participate in this. So like when we are tricking people into joining our list, it's just like a guy buying you a drink at a bar with a very certain set of intentions in mind, right? Like, I mean, the, the peril is not exact. I've written an essay about that, but like there is what's happening is people are creating um, systems where they can prey on other people to get what they want. That's what rape culture is. And overriding consent is part of that. I see the exact same thing going on in like online marketing circles where we're taught to do that. So it's just a replication of rape culture. I, I, I'm not going to play along with that. No, no. So how does that show up? How do you do that in your business? What is the consent piece? Well, I, so one of the things that we learn in online marketing, standard online marketing is, is like consent's one and done. Someone signs up to your list and now ever after you can send them anything you want all the time. I don't think that that's the case. I think that they signed up once and you have to keep checking in because consent is a fluid living thing. And so, for example, people sign up to my newsletter. Most often, 90% of people who sign up to my newsletter didn't have like any little cookie. They didn't get any little free gift. I have a few of them. But for the most part, they're just signing up because they want to get the newsletter. So already we have this arrangement where they have, we're in a, we're in a, like an emotional contract where they have given me their email address in, in exchange for me sending my Sunday love letter. And so if I don't send my Sunday love letter, then I'm kind of out of integrity with that agreement. Like we've made an agreement. And so that encourages me to send the Sunday love letter, which is one of my prides and joy, um, my regular newsletter. I never feel terrible. I never feel like I'm cluttering up people's inboxes because I know that that's why they signed up because they want to get that thing. So it's my job to provide it. Right. They didn't come first for a free opt-in. Right. I have a few free opt-ins that I use from time to time, but most people across time have signed up just because they want the love letter. And then the second part is when I am actually doing a marketing launch sales campaign. So let's say my copywriting for culture readers program that you, that you mentioned, when I'm going to launch that, I actually send an email to the whole list saying, Hey, I'm about to launch this program. That means over the next 20 days, I'm going to send about 20 emails. If you don't want to get those 20 emails or you are totally not interested in this program, then just click here to opt out. You're still going to stay on the list. You'll still get my Sunday love letter. You just won't get any of those launch emails. And so I check in and I give people the option, you know, before I even start sending the sales emails. And, but the other thing is, is I'm also very transparent that this is in fact a business. I am not writing these letters for a hobby. And so you can expect, I'm very upfront, like you can expect to receive marketing materials. And here's how you can quiet them if you don't want to receive them. Yeah. I remember when I got one of those consent emails for the first time and it just, it felt so good to be asked. It felt so good to be asked. I was really honored to be able to make a, a consensual choice. And I'd never been asked that before. Wow. Yeah. I think a lot of people do it now. I'm seeing more and more people. I am and, seeing it more and more. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping it's because they've seen it, you know, and they're emulating it. The first time I sent that email, the launch, e the pre-launch email, the like refresh, I call it the refresh consent email. I just did it because I was in a place of cognitive dissonance, right? Where I was like, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good to me. I don't want to do this. So how do I do it differently? What would bring it back into integrity? How can I make sure that I'm not overriding consent, which is such a dear and cherished visceral thing for me? 
So that was like, I'm just going to send this email. And I didn't think, and I, I did actually think, I honestly thought I was making a sacrifice because I thought, you know what, a whole bunch of people are going to unsubscribe or quiet the emails and the launch is going to flop. And I kind of made this like, well, if it does, it does, right? Like I, I just need to be in, in integrity with my principles. I need to not be participating in rape culture. I need to not be overriding consent. So I actually thought that I was doing something stupid for my business in all seriousness. And I just did it anyways. And then something magical happened. A whole bunch of people I had in, in that email, there's no link to the sales page, right? There is just a, here's where you can click to not get this. A whole bunch of people went and found the sales page on their own and bought the thing without even there being a link there. Some people found other things and bought more expensive things than that. And one person uh, emailed me and said, I've been following you for a while and kind of on the fence about whether I should invest or not. And this email from you convinced me that you are the teacher that I have been looking for. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And has now been my client for many, many years and purchased many, many things. And I was flabbergasted. But this is what I mean by if you do it your way, you do better. But it was a risk. I'd never seen anyone do it. And I was just like, I have to do this for my own self. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to send those emails. And so I did that. A lot of people opted out, stayed on the list, still got the Sunday love letter. And a lot of people purchased. And so I was like, ever after, it's my practice. This is just what I do now. So something can be good for them, the clients, good for the collective, in that we are not reproducing rape culture, and also good for my business. So whenever we're in that, we're in the sweet spot of like culture making marketing. Can we talk about money? Well, and I think your tagline is always, or you're like your sign off is always money and justice, which I just think is just brilliant. Those are my two non-negotiables. Well, and to pair them together again, I'd never seen them paired together because it feels like, well, you get one or the other. Right. And that's what I'm trying to interrupt. Right. Because that creates that starving artist, starving activist, starving good person story of like, okay. And, and, but that's not that it doesn't have to be that way. And again, if we are starving, then that's the system working as it should. So I think that uh, in a, in a system where we all flourish, then everyone has all that they need. Right. And we don't need like 75,000 square foot mansions. Right. But we all need to be able to flourish. We need to have our resources, like resources to have our expenses covered and to make sure we have some safety if we're ill or to take care of family members. So look, we need that. So I want us to be able to create that level of resource of right livelihood and I want us to flourish. And I have been broke and poor and was a single mom with no child support for 12 years. Like I know what it is to struggle and I don't want that for anyone. I don't want us to suffer unnecessarily. So I want us to learn how to create right livelihood so that we have the resources to flourish, not the resources to buy yachts and, and helicopters, but the resources we need to flourish and to circulate resources in our communities. So it's really important. Money's really important to me. Well, and it just, it's, you know, it, it seems like it should be so impossible. When I was reading when I first encountered you like years ago and I was reading about it and looking at the program and my whole, like everything that I had learned was like, no, this should not work. This should not be able to work. And so this idea that I could do good in the world, that I could serve people and that I could thrive financially. I didn't believe it. I really didn't. Right. Because we've been trained not to believe it. That's part of the conditioning, right? The, the big narrative is like, no, we can't do diversity and inclusion. It costs too much. No, we can't do equity because the pipeline. Like, no, we can't do those things. But it's not true. Like, that's a very convenient narrative. And so, I mean, I think we all know that when we get together and do things together, we actually can flourish. So, I, and I know, I just know this to be true. Like, okay, so maybe I can't be as rich as Jeff Bezos, but I'm morally opposed to that kind of wealth anyways. So like, no, my, my business practices will not build Amazon. That's absolutely the truth. That's the truth. But my business practices can create thriving small businesses that change your life, that take you out of poverty into right livelihood. That absolutely can happen. It's so good. And it works. Like it's really, 
It works. I mean, you've got a whole community of people who are building really incredible, like making the world a better place businesses and thriving while they're doing it. Yes. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's a really old business principle, right? The business principle of win, win, win that, that is also a communal principle, but there's also Mm -hmm. something too about, you know, when you were talking about like these tactics shouldn't work, let's talk specifically about copywriting, for example. Um, the, the conventional copywriting systems that we learn everywhere are basically press on someone's pain point, agitate them into a place of like subconscious activation and, and like subconscious triggers, and then provide them a solution so that they buy to get out of pain. So it's called problem agitates uh, solution, PAS. There's a couple of other versions of that, but that's like, that's how you're supposed to market. So what you're supposed to do is basically say, you are broke, fat, stupid, and ugly. And for $3,000, I can tell you a secret that will fix it. And fat in the negative way, right? I don't personally react fat in that way, but that's what the, the overall messages are, right? And then you buy to solve those problems because you're in pain. There is research by the Center for Community Change that they have a model very similar to my model where you write with, with heart and with vision. So you forecast the vision. You say there's a shared value that we all have. And then you say, here's what's actually getting in the way. And, the, and it's not you, you're not the problem, but there's actual systemic circumstantial things going on here that are the problem. And there is a different way to do it. So when you lead with vision, like here's your value, here's the vision, here's what your heart say, here's what your principles say. Then you say what's actually getting in the way and it's not the client, it's a something systemic. And then you present a solution that actually that converts better than the problem agitate solution. So if you let, if you leave with vision, people do buy. But the narrative is, it's like, no, they don't buy. You have to get, you have to get them in pain and you have to subconsciously trigger the survival act instincts and then they will buy to get out of pain. So all I'm saying is they did some research where they tested out both messages, the negative, like the, the conventional problem based messages where you stroke pain and they versus the vision value based messages. Those ones converted better. So there is some research that leading with vision actually converts better than leading with pain. I mean, there's a couple more things you have to do to activate that to make that work. But I'm just saying, in general, they've done actual research showing that their their um, vision-led copywriting converted better than the pain-based ones. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And you're not re-traumatizing, re-triggering, harming people while you're doing it. I mean, it's just... That's the word, re-traumatizing people. Right? Or it's either re- that we're re-traumatizing people to sell things or we're leveraging oppression and survival fears to sell things or we're leveraging privilege, if we have it, for people to obey us to sell things. Like n- none of that is how I want to move in the world. And that is not the, the future that I want us to live into. It's not the present I want to live in, but it's certainly not the future I want us to live into. So if we want something different, then we've got to be creative and do something different in our daily practices. But it means taking a risk. It's not an easy thing. Like the reason we do it the status quo way is there's some evidence that, that we see that it can work, right? There are formulas and systems. And the thing about being a culture maker and a world changer is you have to deviate from those systems and create a different system to produce a different result. There's a risk there if you have to pay the rent this month. It's hard to take that risk. It's true. It's really true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just really struck by that. I mean, I'm just putting myself back in that place where I was before. It's, it was, it's, it is very scary to trust that this other thing that feels so oppositional to everything we've ever been taught could possibly work. Well, and I guess that's, I, I just did it because I honestly couldn't make the other way work. Like I said, I was in the stop start, like I could do it for three months and I disappeared for three months. So I was never going to succeed in the standard way because I couldn't perform that character because I am not that character, right? My body is not going to play nice with that. It's just not. And I couldn't do it because my, it violates my principles. So I'm in a constant state of cognitive dissonance, which is a massive energy drain. So it violates my principles and I can't play it because my identity is not the identity it's built for. So what's my other choice? Do I just sit there and like be broke? Like what's the choice? Yeah. A different way. A different way. way. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, and you're sharing that with so many people. Yeah. I mean, that's like 12 years in the making, but now there's a lot of people 
who've either gone through those programs or are actively training in these systems. So I have so much hope and I see it. Like, Sophia, I see such a difference from like 2016 to now. When I was saying this stuff about the female lifestyle empowerment brand in 2016, there were people like talking about me in groups and like there was so much pushback, I like so much pushback about it. And now some of those people who pushed back on it and who were like bad mouthing me in Facebook groups and, and bad mouthing my analysis and my practices are now like my clients. <laughs> Perfect. Right? And I see so yeah. many people teaching parallel things who before I would have categorized them, let's say, as a female lifestyle empowerment brand. You know, at one point I had a list and I was like, this is my research. Like, these are the people and this is what they're practicing. I never named them. That's why I named the female lifestyle empowerment brand. But like now I see those people changing their practices. And so I see, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's because of me, but I do see that we as a community are starting to spread these practices out and we emulate each other. So whether or not someone comes and trains with me, there's enough people out there doing these things that now we have examples of different practices that we can emulate just from seeing the outside of what's happening. We can see someone did that thing. Like you saw that email, that refresh consent email. And now you're like, oh, well, maybe I can do that. You didn't like, even though you took a program with me, you didn't have to take a program with me to do that. We actually learn from each other's examples as well. And I'm just, what I'm trying to say is I see so many more examples of people doing it that way now. It's true. I see it as well. And, and I've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm so luckily, lucky to work for the writing studio that I work for, which is so rooted in this approach as well. And it's a successful, thriving business. And it's deeply feminist, deeply committed to consent. And like even the way, you know, pay structures, you don't pay more if you're, it's a payment plan. Like there's all these little things that actually are very practical that businesses can do if they want to be less predatory. So I've I've got some really great examples of them, and so I believe it. I really believe I'm it. So now. glad to hear that. It is hard to believe in something that you haven't seen, but sometimes we have to make the leap into the abyss because the the cliff that we're standing on is not acceptable to us. So Kelly, there's also something else pretty important going on in your life that I uh, that we talked about a little bit, and that I'm so grateful you're open to sharing with the group which is around um, a health situation that you're facing and that is so deeply connected to anti-fat bias. And so uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So connected. So um, last year I got diagnosed with uh, lipedema. And interestingly enough, lipedema is something that you either have or you don't have. So I have always had lipedema, but I didn't know that I had it. And it didn't cause me any physical pain or impede my mobility until last summer. And then like things got very rough very quickly. But what lipedema is, it's, it's what's called a rare adipose disorder. So it is a fat, it's a disease of fat. And so most people have fat that is long and smooth, like it's smooth fat. The, the fat that I have is little nodules. And what happens with those little nodules is lymph can't pass through. So like the, your lymph fluid can't pass through those nodules and then it starts collecting there. And then you have all this protein rich fluid sitting there. And what does it do? Is it activate, it triggers your fat cells to produce more of those fat nodules, which then means less lymph moves, which means more lymph is sitting. Which So it's like this really negative feedback loop where you just get more and more of these nodules and at some point you, well, this is what happened for me is now I've gotten to the point where like, I'm so swollen that it's actually impeding my mobility in a profound way, profound. And it's a tough thing. So it's linked to estrogen. So it can present for people at puberty. It can present for them when they are pregnant or have a child. It can present for them in perimenopause and menopause. It always is sort of there visually because you're, you're, you're the shape of your legs and in particular and the texture of your skin looks a particular way, but it just goes undiagnosed for most people. But 9 to 10% of all women have it. And, and there are certain place times where it's just going to get kicked off and be a real problem. So now looking back, I realize, oh my gosh, so many of my issues around my body, like I was actually a very thin kid. And then around puberty, got very big legs and very big bum very fast, was still very thin, but got made fun of, which then kicked off an eating disorder where I was trying to 
deal with that. Well, lipedema doesn't respond to dieting. You cannot lose those lipedema nodules by dieting. It's not physically possible. So there was nothing I could have done, but I didn't know that. Instead, I just starved myself. Right. And now, now I'm in a position where I have all these nodules that are actually like destroying my mobility and putting me in 24 seven pain. So it was undiagnosed for like 30 years. And now it, it's only when it got to a crisis point that we actually figured out what's going on. And the terrible thing about this is this was only recognized as a, as a real disease in 2019 by the World Health Organization. There are really, and many countries are ahead and have been working on it for a long time, like Germany, Poland, Eastern European countries, lots of countries in Europe um, and South America have been, you know, developing treatments and figuring out how to handle this for a very long time. Um, Canada, no, none of the treatments are covered at all by our medical system. Nothing is covered. And the surgery that can correct it, like you actually have to have these nodules removed, right? There's no way for you to diet them away. They don't go away from dieting. So you actually have to have them removed if they're at that crisis point. Like, and there are, it's like a 20, 30, $40,000 surgery. Wow. And you have to go, you can't, and there's no coverage in Canada. You have to like go. There's no medical coverage for it in the sense that you will have to pay out of pocket for it. And there's only a handful of people who do that kind of surgery and it's coded as cosmetic. That's why it's not covered. It's coded as like, it's a cosmetic surgery, but it, it's like, it will actually make me able to walk again. So I'm, I'm going to the United States to have surgery done and I'm paying out of pocket for it, which brings me back to the money thing. Money will get me a life altering medical treatment. This is why I need to make money. And this is why money is not a bad thing. Like the system that is not set up for my well-being and will not pay for my medical care, that is a problem. But I am taking evasive action and I'm doing whatever I can to put the money and the resources together to make that happen. So that's why money and justice are part of the same conversation. I'm not saying it's just that I can come up with the resources to pay for that. Like, what I've had to do to come up with the resources to pay for that would blow people's minds. Like it has been brutal at a time when I'm not well, it's brutal, but what's the alternative that I suffer for the rest of my life and my mobility gets worse and worse until I can no longer walk. I'm, I'm not willing to accept that as an outcome. I'm in pain 24 seven. I'm going to get the surgery, you know, even like I'm going to get the surgery. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to raise the money to do that. So that's why we can't be like uh, thinking money is evil, money is bad. We need the resources to get medical treatment, to take care of people, to protect people. Oh, wow. Well, I'm so glad that you've got that lined up and that you're able to go and get the surgery. Lipedema is so interesting because like you say, it's visually people just assume it's like, like they assume with all fatness, like, oh, that person just ate a lot in exercise and now they've got fat. But it, it's it has nothing, like you said, has nothing to do with any of that. It's just genetic. You have it or you don't. And yet people with lipedema face so much anti-fat bias. So much. Right. And because it, like there's different body shapes that go with lipedema. But now now that I know what it is, I can be walking down the street. And I'm like, oh, I know what that is. That's lipedema. Like I can spot it in a second. Right. But I, and I, but I wish, I wish someone had taught me about that when I was 13. It saved me a world of hurt. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's turn to joy. <laughs> what a rich conversation. I'm just going to swim in it for a while. I think. Thank you. How do you connect to joy? What's your relationship to joy? How do you bring it in? You know, joy has been something I've had to learn. Because I am the oldest daughter from a lower middle class family. It's the first person in my family to go to university. What I learned was, was to hustle, right? I learned to work. <laughs> and it has been a challenge for me to cultivate joy because I'm always thinking I need to work. I need to survive. I've got these kids to feed. You know, I have no social safety net. I've got to make this happen. And it is only, I'd say, in the last five years where I've actually thought like, oh, I need to make it a priority to focus on my well-being. Like, I only have this one wild and precious life. And one of the things that 
has been really important for me is to connect the dots between like the system wants to be miserable. My joy is a revolution, right? So that has helped me cultivate it. But just also like, I only have this one life that I know about. You know, it can't be miserable. I'm not here. And sometimes I, I get caught up in like overgiving. I want everyone else to be doing well. And sometimes I'll take the hit myself to make sure that other people have what they need. I'll give away too many things for free. And then I have to work seven days a week to like make up the difference. So I've really had to like get in a relationship with like my joy matters too. My life matters too. If I'm morally opposed to suffering, then I have to be morally opposed to my own suffering. So how do I cultivate joy? I have given my permission, myself permission to just like the things that I like. Right? Like I love dogs. I am obsessed with my dog. Obsessed with her. She's a Rottweiler. Her name is Darling. She is the love of my life. Right? Gives me so much joy, even when she's destroying things. I adore her. Right? So just having my dog in my life is like one of the greatest things in the world. My kids are such a delight, right? So I really try to cultivate more unstructured relationship time with them, not always like take the garbage out, eat the vegetables. Did you do your homework? Please have a shower. Like those, it's not always doing those, but like really just like, you know, how are you? Do you want to go for a walk? Like, what can we do together? Okay, yes, I'll play trains. I don't want to play trains. I just want to be with them, right? Like I'm just trying to do those things of just unstructured sweet time with people instead of always being directed time. So those are things. And then just other things like, okay, so I really like having my nails done, right? I really like those things. I really like art and decor. And so I give myself permission to, you know, just delight in decor magazines, even if it feels frivolous and, you know, buy leopard paint fabric and reupholster a, a boring bench. Like I just give myself permission to do the artsy sweet things that I like and to like what I like. So I like hot pink. I like bright green. I like leopard. And so that is the way it's going to be. I mean, I just have to give myself permission to like what I like and, and just do those things and not always be on the treadmill of like, I need to support all these people. I need to provide all these things. I need to do all this stuff. So I've got to find a balance there. It's not an easy thing though. I have had to train myself, Sophia. Had to train myself. Oh, I get it. To like what you like, fully disregarding what we're quote unquote supposed to like this season even is is a revolutionary act. Like you said, your joy is a revolution. That's a really hard thing to do to just like what we like. I, I do this thing called desire days where, because I was feeling very disconnected. And so I started booking, I mean, it started out as a full day. It's become maybe like half a day now. But I try to do it every month where I just take, I don't know, five hours and I set a timer because I love setting a timer because then I can disconnect from like needing to pay attention to time. And I fully just get embodied and I'm like, all right, full self, what do you desire in this moment? Because I didn't know anymore. I just got so far from it. So like being able to like what I like, being able to know what that is, being able to fall like to follow it to, to as much as I could. And a lot of times it's like, go put your face in the sun <laughs> or, oh my gosh, you yeah. know, like read like the next chapter of your book. Like it was these little things. It wasn't to go out and buy a Tesla. It was like, get some sun on your face. Cause you love pretending to be a cat in like a sunbeam. Yeah. Oh um, my gosh. Right. Go curl up on your bed with a pillow, even though it's 2 PM and you're not tired, but because you just want to like luxuriate, on a duvet you know like it was such simple pleasures that and it is simple pleasures yeah like your nails done like that's a that's a simple fun thing yeah oh, and as you say that like the other thing that gives me great joy is roses so you know i have a rose garden outside i don't really know anything about gardening but i buy new rose bushes every year so that every year i have more and more pink roses <laughs> so you know, i just i just want to live in a field of roses these climb up my balcony, right? Take the house over. I just love, so I love lavender. I love sunflowers. I love roses. And so I don't know anything about gardening, but I just plant those three things and just like do my best with them. Let them go. That's a great combo. The purple, the yellow, the pink. Oh, they're, they're my so, favorites. So and they're beautiful. all things that you can like cut and bring in the house and like, it's amazing. Yeah. That gives me a lot of joy. 
Fight is a revolution. And I feel like that's like the perfect place to like close the podcast. Kelly, you are delightful. You are so brilliant. Every time I hear you talk, I'm just like, oh, her brain. It's just what like it. It almost renders me speechless, as you can tell, but because my brain is going a mile a minute, like parsing what you've said and thinking about, oh, I can incorporate that this way and I can play with that this way. And I can't wait to share with so-and-so about this thing that Kelly said. Like you just, you really activate my intellect. So thank you so much. I'm feeling that like as a serious compliment. Thank you so much. That feeds me. Thank you, Sophia. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. I'm always so fired up after experiencing Kelly's words. I'm so grateful to have studied with her and to be sharing her wisdom and culture-making ethos with you. This poem feels like the energy I have after those conversations, and it is called Some Girls, and it's by Allison Luderman. Some girls can't help it. They are lit sparklers, hot-blooded, half-naked in the depths of winter, tagging moving trains with the bright insignia of their fury. I've seen their inked torsos, falcons, swans, meteor showers, and shadowed their secret rendezvous, walking and flying all night over paths traced like veins through the deep body of the forest where they are trying on their new wings, rising to power with a ferocious mercy not seen before in the cities of men. Having survived slander, abuse, and every kind of exile, they're swooping down even now from treetops where they were roosting, wearing robes woven of spider webs and pigeon feathers. They have pulled the living child out of the flames and are prepared to take charge through the coming apocalypse. I have learned that some girls are boys, some are birds. Some are oases ringing with stalking lions, ringed with stalking lions. See, I cannot even name them, although one of them is looking out through my eyes right now. One of them is writing all this down with light struck fingers. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.